The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavinto Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. A combination of congressional Democrats and conservative Republicans voted down the 2018 Farm Bill last week. We'll tell you why and offer the latest assessment for when it'll come up to a vote again in Congress. Apparently, we're friends with China again. We report on progress in U.S.-China trade talks and those tariffs that didn't materialize. California farmers are wide-eyed at the prospect of growing a drought-tolerant crop that can fetch up to $90,000 an acre at harvest time. Yes, we are talking hemp, and the prospect of its legalization are increasing. We have an in-depth report on this crop with over 25,000 uses. All that, the latest crop news, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Farm Bill was put to its first vote on Friday, May 18th. The bill was defeated. Gary Crawford of the USDA has more. For those of us who covered the House debate on the Farm Bill back on June 20th of 2013, this week's House debate may have sparked a sense of deja vu just before that 2013 vote. Then, Ag Committee Chairman Frank Lucas pleading with lawmakers. We have to move this document forward. Instead, oh, it was defeated after some heated debate. Flash forward to the 18th. Once again, things got heated toward the end of debate. Once again, a pre-vote plea by current Ag Committee Chairman Mike Conaway. We've had... Three years of hard work on this, 114 hearings. Uh, we're ready to move this bill forward. And just like five years ago, it did not move forward. On this vote, the yeas are 198, the nays are 213. The bill does not pass. Prompting Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to issue a short statement saying, in part, our farmers feed the people of this nation and the world. They deserve the certainty of a farm bill. House Speaker Paul Ryan did move to reconsider the vote to vote again on the bill at some point. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Now, you really didn't expect a USDA employee to tell you why the farm bill failed? Well, it was a combination of two major factors, conservative Republicans who wanted stricter controls on immigration and urban Democrats who were against tighter restrictions on getting food stamps. Serena Marshall of ABC News has more. The conservative House Freedom Caucus followed through on their threat to withhold support until they get a vote on immigration. 30 Republicans in all joined Democrats to defeat the bill. Democrats united in their opposition because of a measure to cut $23 billion from the food stamp program. Serena Marshall, ABC News, Washington. And successful farming reports that the House has quietly delayed Speaker Paul Ryan's attempt to revive the farm bill until June 22nd. GOP leaders intend to remove conservative opposition to the bill by holding a vote on immigration control in the interim. State Water Project customers are going to get a bit more water in 2018. The California Department of Water Resources increased the SWP allocation for 2018 to 35%. That's up slightly from the 30% allocation announced in April. Back in December, contractors were notified of only 15%. That was later raised to 20% in January. This comes despite the statewide snow water content dropping from 44% of average on April 21st to 15% of average in mid-May. 
Snowpack accumulation for the year is well below average because warm temperatures brought more rain than snow in the northern Sierra. While U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators were in Washington this past week working on averting a trade war and reducing the U.S. trade deficit with China, U.S. Undersecretary of Agriculture for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Ted McKinney was in China talking with officials there leading a U.S. trade mission. And despite all of the tariffs and threats of tariffs, all the talk about a U.S.-China trade war... We did not sense hostility at all in our visits with the Chinese. On the phone from China, McKinney telling reporters... Given the issues that we're facing on trade, uh, it, it was so wonderful to see the incredible receptivity to U.S. products. Which he said was demonstrated time and time again as he and representatives of 24 U.S. companies held meetings with Chinese buyers and visited trade shows. But while the trade mission continued in China, news was being made back here in Washington with the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin's statement to Fox News this past Sunday. We're putting the trade war on on, on hold. This after several days of talks, those words producing a rapid-fire blast of news. First, the Chinese announcing they were dropping the huge tariffs that had been imposed on U.S. sorghum. The U.S. put on hold its threat of tariffs on Chinese products. President Trump tweeted on Monday morning, quoting, Under our potential trade deal with China, they will purchase from our great American farmers practically as much as our farmers can produce, leading Ted McKinney to say, We'll take that as a challenge and see how the discussions go. And yes, that was the next bit of news that in the next week or so, U.S. Commerce Secretary Ross and others are going to be going to China to firm up some of the details of a possible agreement. And ag will be, among other things, ag will be one of the focal points. And for that, we are very uh, very pleased. And while all of this was very exciting and it did move commodity markets up. I do not want people to get overly excited. I think we should be very cautiously optimistic. You know, I'll remind people that we've seen this before. And uh, sometimes the excitement generates benefits and realities and sometimes it does not. And so until we get through next week or perhaps following weeks, it may take two or three rounds of this. I'm going to refrain uh, from saying anything more than I'm cautiously uh, optimistic. And during that 24-minute media call, McKinney used that phrase... Cautiously optimistic. Seven times. So um, we'll have to see. You know, it's a little bit of to and fro in times like this, but I, I remain cautiously optimistic. Sorry, eight times. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Dairy farmers have only through the end of the month to sign up for USDA's Dairy Margin Protection Program, which is designed to help dairy farmers struggling with low milk prices and ever-increasing feed costs. Recent changes to the program guarantee a positive benefit for more than 90% of the dairy farmers who previously participated in the MPP. That's according to Dr. John Newton, Director of Market Intelligence for America. American Farm Bureau Federation. Given that a large portion of the dairy farmers in the United States qualify for the low-cost Tier 1 coverage, and given that we know what the margins were for February and March, it's a no-brainer for farmers to sign up for the MPP program in 2018. Farmers that don't sign up in 2018 that can cover at or below 5 million pounds of milk are leaving money on the table, quite frankly, if they do not take advantage of this opportunity. The previous version of the MPP didn't quite give dairy farmers the help they greatly needed, Newton says. Congress recognized that in the 2018 Bipartisan Budget Act, made several key changes to the margin protection program designed to make it much more affordable and to deliver program payments to farmers on a monthly basis rather than every two months. After Congress made those changes, USDA reopened sign-up. Sign-up closes on June 1st. 
The revamped program will better help dairy farmers to protect themselves against the gap between milk prices and feed costs. Many of the changes relate to Tier 1 coverage under which premiums are lower. The modifications made to the margin protection program were really targeted to Tier 1 eligibility. They lowered the Tier 1 premium rates and increased Tier 1 coverage to 5 million pounds of milk. So any farmer in the United States that has a production history of 20 million pounds or less is eligible to cover in the margin protection program 5 million pounds of milk. Chad Smith, Washington. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has detected Newcastle disease in a small flock of backyard exhibition chickens in Los Angeles County. This is the first case of Newcastle disease in the United States since 2003. The USDA's Rod Bain has more. USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service officials are among those at a Southern California backyard exhibition chicken premise investigating a confirmed case of virulent Newcastle disease. We're investigating as we go along. It's very early in the investigation, trying to identify any other birds that may have been in contact with these birds, try to limit the spread of this disease to the best of our ability. APHIS Associate Deputy Administrator Burke Healy says VND does not pose either a human health risk or a food safety concern, but this virus can spread rapidly among poultry and birds, and in unvaccinated birds is 100% fatal. He emphasizes the importance of poultry owners, no matter the size of their flocks or operations, to take proper biosecurity measures. The primary steps as far as biosecurity is keeping it clean and don't bring it home. Newcastle disease, being a virus, is often spread in manure or people's clothes, mechanical movement on equipment, shoes, things of that nature. So steps like washing hands, cleaning and disinfecting clothes and equipment before moving to or from a poultry area will help prevent spread of a virus. Healy says an additional biosecurity measure is isolating exhibition birds returning from shows for 30 days before placing them with the rest of the flock. And owners noticing sick birds or unusual bird deaths should report these immediately to state or federal officials. This is the first reported case of what is also known as exotic Newcastle disease in the U.S. since an outbreak occurred in California in 2003. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Farmers finished groundwork for rice. In Sutter County, sunflowers and safflower emerged. Garbanzo beans were planted. Some have already emerged. Sunflowers for oil were progressing well down in Imperial County. Alfalfa fields continue to mature. They were being harvested. Winter wheat and oats were cut, dried, and baled. Berries and grapes were developing. Vineyard leaf removal was ongoing. Stone fruit orchards were irrigated and fertilized. Immature fruit on stone fruit varieties are being thinned. New orchards were being planted. Cherry harvest is ongoing. Pomegranates were blooming and forming fruit. Kiwis were blooming. The olive bloom was winding down. Valencia oranges are being harvested. Seedless mandarin groves remain netted for the bloom. Some citrus trees were being planted as older trees were trimmed and skirted. Almonds are developing well across the state. Almonds and walnuts were being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves, and weed control continues. Tomatoes continue to be planted in Sutter County. Onions were in bloom there. Beans and Brussels sprouts were planted in San Mateo County. Onions for dehydration were harvested in Imperial County. Strawberries are being harvested in Monterey County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture is rated fair to excellent. Sierra Foothill and Northern County ranges benefited from the week's late season precipitation. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees were active in kiwi for pollination and in citrus for honey production. Some bees were staged near melon and vegetable fields. 
take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is investing $256 million in 81 projects to improve water and wastewater infrastructure in rural areas in 35 states. Projects include a $6.2 million USDA loan to construct a water treatment plant with new intake and water lines in Russellville, Arkansas. Other awards include $4.8 million for Moore County, North Carolina to provide sewer service to the town of Vass, $1.4 million for the city of Edgerton, Minnesota to connect to the Lincoln Pipestone Rural Water System, and $446,000 for the Leroy Water Authority in Alabama to improve its water system. Of the 81 projects announced, none were granted to California, the nation's leading agricultural state. Farmers, remember not long ago how you went about your decision process in purchasing your combine, implement, etc. for your field and harvest work? Mark Burns of Case IH does. Realistically, if you think back even 10 years ago, technology was not at the forefront of a lot of the purchase decisions as they bought based on horsepower and creature comforts. But the advancement of precision agriculture practices and big data availability has changed all that. And Tiffany Turner of John Deere says there is a lot of precision involved behind the equipment that conducts precision ag. Technology starts even when we're starting with soil testing all the way till we get done with harvest. We have a lot of things to make sure that we can keep the customer running and efficient. We've also got things that are going to help with water management, help making sure and measure that so we're not overwatering or underwatering so we can make sure that we can be efficient. The combine cab these days contains several tablets and iPads that serve as data collection and reflection centers. Meanwhile, automated guidance systems self-steers farm machinery in a precision manner. But as Turner admits, much of this technology, both in the present and the future, needs secure, consistent broadband or wireless connection to operate efficiently. One of the biggest things is we look as a country to keep expanding technology. We need to make sure they have that coverage and they have that rural broadband to make sure they can meet those folks' needs no matter where they're at. And she admits. There's many times I'm driving across different states and we're out visiting customers or dealers and you might find those dead spots. Sometimes you would be in the middle of a very busy area and you would still see some dead spots that are out there. Sure, tech these days includes combines with onboard data storage that saves information and uploads or downloads when connection becomes available. But the need for connection and communication between the home base and machinery, even between implements, is essential in the precision ag realm. Mark Burns talks about telematics. Being able to wirelessly talk vehicle to vehicle or from office to vehicle, so we're in the case of our sprayer platform, sending jobs to the sprayer so it knows what it needs to apply at what rate and which field we need to be in. Once that's done, we can send the as-applied maps back to the office for record keeping or for reporting, what have you. For those areas with limited or no broadband or wireless coverage, Burns says some farm machinery is using cellular technology as a workaround. We even have modems that get mounted inside the vehicle that allows you to utilize your cellular network to provide that communication link. A broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Citrus fruit production in California contributes more than $7 billion a year to the state's economy. That according to a study commissioned by the Citrus Research Board. The study computed the value of the fruit itself, the value of materials and services sold to citrus growers and packers, and the household spending of those employed in the citrus business. Citrus production also generates more than 21,000 full-time jobs here in California. 
USDA has been holding roundtable discussions around the country aimed at helping rural communities find local solutions to the scourge of opioid addiction. We began this in March. Um, there was an event that kicked us off in Pennsylvania. Um, we have since been to Nevada, Utah, and Missouri, and we will be going to Oklahoma and Maine. That was Ann Hazlett, USDA's assistant to the secretary on rural development. She's also the point person on the agency's fight against the opioid epidemic. Because no two rural communities are the same, we really believe that the most effective solution to this issue lies at that local level. So we see our role at USDA is to come alongside and be a partner to local leaders. I'm Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at USDA's efforts to combat opioids by taking its message on the road to places like Kentucky. We were watching that night in Kentucky Beneath a beautiful harvest moon. If you're talking about the problem of opioid addiction, Kentucky is an appropriate place to have that discussion. As a native Kentuckian and proud to be a Kentuckian, I knew we had a problem, but I didn't know how bad it was until our assistant to the Secretary Hazlett gave me a list of 220 counties nationally that were considered in distress. That was Hilda Legg, Kentucky State Director for USDA's Rural Development. Guess how many were in Kentucky? Fifty-four. Fifty-four of the 220 nationally of counties that were in distress were in our own Commonwealth. And so it is a much more pervasive and devastating and um, non-socioeconomically determined crisis than I had even realized. She was introducing Ann Hazlett at a roundtable USDA held there on the opioid crisis. At USDA, our core mission under the leadership of our secretary is really one of building prosperity in rural communities. So as we focus on quality of life and economic opportunity in rural America, this is a high priority for our leadership. The local discussions are aimed at finding local solutions, and Hazel says USDA is ready to help people around the country. First, I want to point out that we have a number of program resources that can be used to help communities uh, with prevention, treatment, and recovery. She noted the focus for this fiscal year. We are giving priority in a distance learning and telemedicine program we have for projects that address the opioid epidemic in rural America. This program uh, provides grant assistance to communities that want to build that remote connection that will help them access critical health services. Also, in addition to telemedicine, uh, we have around $5 million in grant funding that we have set aside through our community facilities program, and this is designed really to help communities with an investment, whether it's in equipment or in infrastructure. The deadline for these two investments is coming quickly. It's coming on June 4th. She urged participants at the roundtable to help in getting the word out. Maybe you represent a community that could use some of those resources. Would love for you to work with our staff to see if that might be a fit for you or if you represent an organization we would love your help in spreading the word. The Kentucky Roundtable discussion included a recovering opioid addict. I spent about two years gradually descending into my addiction and then in the fall of 2012 uh, I was in my dorm room at Center College studying for the LSAT because I wanted to go to law school and uh, nine months from that time I went through four treatment centers and I ended up spending the last week of my addiction homeless in Dayton Ohio sleeping under a bridge under the Highway 35 overpass, shooting heroin and holding a cardboard sign that said homeless and hungry and taking people's money and putting it in my arms. 
That was Adam Ellswick. Just a, uh, a living, breathing stereotype of all the most awful images that your mind can conjure when you think of drug addiction. That was me and that's my story. And I don't want the focus, I don't want us to sit in the problem. I don't want to spend any more time talking about the problem because we wouldn't be here if we weren't all well aware that what we have is a problem. Not only was his goal to put a human face on the problem, but he also wanted to highlight the importance of following up with recovering addicts after treatment. There are so many folks here doing phenomenal work with promotion and prevention and treatment, but it's all for naught if we abandon people in their time of greatest need right after treatment. And so what Voices of Hope does is try to amplify and maximize the return on investment that folks are doing with treatment and prevention. And that's by things like program of telephone recovery support, where volunteers make weekly calls to people who are in recovery that really just pivot on the question, how can I help you with your recovery today? And they offer that much needed social and emotional support and connect people to resources wherever possible. USDA has two more regional opioid roundtables planned in the near future in Oklahoma and Maine. For more information, go to USDA.gov and search for opioids. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You may recall during winter we had spring-like weather, and then we had winter weather in the spring. Well, that conspired to help reduce this year's California cherry crop. Cherry harvest has begun in the southern San Joaquin Valley, with farmers reporting less fruit on their trees. Freezing temperatures at bloom time appear to have had the biggest impact. Cherry growers say they expect a high-quality harvest and that the season will continue through early June. A training session held by the American Farm Bureau Federation's Promotion and Education Committee in Washington, D.C., gave Farm Bureau members and staff tools needed to successfully engage with consumers. The food consumer engagement training helps farmers and ranchers connect with consumers and provided valuable information, according to Val Wagner, Farm Bureau's Promotion and Education Committee Vice Chair. We have this amazing opportunity to be able to have an intense engagement type training, showing people how to engage with consumers, meeting them at their level, answering those tough questions and giving them a lot of different resources to not only connect with consumers, but put their own spin on it, make it a personal journey for them. Wagner says the training provides resources to allow members to utilize what they learned back home. So many times we see how you have so many great educational opportunities and you learn all of these things and you get all excited and then you get home and you're like, well, now what? Where do I go from here? And so this gave us an opportunity to not only give them that excitement, but give them that plan so that they can map their own journey and actually be ready when they get home to just put it into place. Wagner says one of the best ways to engage with consumers is to start by listening. That helps make the answer easier to give because they feel like you're truly appreciating what their questions are and you truly are sharing that value with them. And then when you walk away, both of you feel connected and maybe the next time they'll be more willing to come to you with those questions instead of looking on Google. Michael Clements, Washington. There was a farm product that was grown by some of our nation's greatest presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Madison. And it may have a future for farmers all over the United States, including California. It can be grown to harvest on about half as much water as corn. It tolerates a wide variety of temperatures and soils. It grows really fast, about 20 feet in 100 days. And you talk about revenue. If you if you think all you want in life is a few acres in Sonoma County to grow red wine grapes, you may want to grow this crop because revenue could be as much as $90,000 per acre for just one of its products. 
And it's a product that my thrifty Uncle Huber would have embraced on the family farm in North Dakota, as he was very fond of saying about his pork livestock, we use all parts of the pig except for the oink. And this commodity as well has a wide variety of uses, 25,000 different products. But there's this one itty-bitty problem. Growing this product is mostly illegal, but that's changing. And you probably have already guessed we're talking about hemp. There was a wonderful article in the May 16th edition of Water Deeply written by former Sacramento Bee reporter Matt Weiser. And Matt, uh, hemp legalization is poised to transform agriculture if it gets the okay. Well, that's right. Uh, it's already legal in many states on a quote-unquote trial basis um, because the 2014 Farm Bill allowed hemp to be grown on no more than 50 acres at a time um, as long as your state and county create a program to oversee it. But that was enough to kick it off in many states, especially states that have already legalized marijuana, which is a cousin of hemp, but hemp does not contain the psychoactive components that are in marijuana. It does contain a whole bunch of other things that are um, important to clothing and building materials and food and a lot of other things. In your article, you point out the history of that and basically how hemp got uh, thrown out, sort of like the baby with the bathwater back in the 1930s. Talk a little bit about that. Hemp was, back in that time, there was no way to distinguish hemp from marijuana. We hadn't yet figured out the uh, chemical components that, that make marijuana psychoactive versus the lack of it in hemp. So they were grouped together. They're also very difficult to distinguish visually. So they were grouped together, and hemp was banned along with marijuana in the um, Controlled Substances Act, and it wasn't until the 1970s that we figured out how to tell them apart chemically. Until very recently, hemp has remained a controlled substance like marijuana. So basically, in marijuana, the active, the psychoactive ingredient is THC. In hemp, there's a product that is produced from hemp called CBD, and CBD oil, as your article points out, is a very popular and effective therapeutic treatment for many health problems. Right. The, the interesting thing is that marijuana has both THC and CBD, but hemp only has CBD, and that's the big distinction. CBD can, is already used in a lot of lotions and oils and various kinds of other supplements and treatments to help with muscle pain and um, stress even. It's also used as a treatment for people who suffer um, the ill effects of concussions. It can help control seizures and things like that. So right now in the U.S., CBD oil is the primary, maybe the only uh, marketable product from hemp until we get the market to grow larger and be able to process the fibers in hemp. You pointed out a little bit earlier that hemp modified legalization happened with the Farm Bill back in 2014, uh, which was introduced by uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, and he has introduced a new hemp legalization bill that's currently working around Congress uh, for the new Farm Bill that would also legalize uh, hemp. But again, it's going to be on a state-by-state basis. I think the whole idea of this federal legislation is just to keep the feds out of the way of the state. 
Yeah, whether it's in the, the new farm bill or separate legislation, um, the McConnell bill would um, throw open the door to full legalization of hemp, meaning that um, uh, unlike right now, you would not have to get a federal background check before you can grow hemp. It would be treated like any other crop, basically. You would not have to have a special state or county program to monitor you while you grow hemp. You could simply plant hemp and find a market for it. Currently, what are the states that are growing it, as they would say, for research purposes only? Well, there's about two dozen states that are currently growing it, and they're all in very small numbers because of how the rules are written currently. But what's interesting is that the growth has been phenomenal. Um, for instance, in, in 2016, Fred, your home state of North, North Dakota grew 70 acres of hemp, and then last year it grew over 3,000 acres. So that's phenomenal growth in one year. If only Uncle Hubert was alive to enjoy that. Right. The same occurred in Oregon, where um, in 2016 they grew 500 acres of hemp, and then last year about 3,500. So word is getting around the potential, the the market potential is um, getting to be uh, understood. And so more people are taking advantage of this narrow window in the law to start planting hemp. So I presume that if it is fully legalized, you're going to see very rapid growth. Let's talk a little bit about the plant itself. I I mentioned early on the fact that it can use about half the water that other crops like corn and alfalfa would use. And it it grows really fast and it can be grown on a wide variety of soils and and various temperatures, too. It, It sounds like an amazing adaptable crop. It is. Uh, It it uses a lot less water than um, a lot of common field or forage crops like corn or like alfalfa. However, it does require a lot of water in the first three weeks of growth to get it established. But then after that, it's very drought tolerant. So you can, if you have water, um, you can, you can grow it in very arid environments or in places that are subject to severe drought, like any place in the West. When we come back, we continue our discussion about hemp a very widely adaptable crop, a very drought-tolerant crop, and one with a myriad of uses with great income, as much as $90,000 an acre for its oil alone. But Weiser offers a warning that as commodities go up in supply, the price goes down. But hemp has a built-in resistance to price drop due to the wide variety of uses it can be put to. Fairly small uh, acreages of hemp can produce a lot of revenue. Presumably down the road, we'll get to a point where the market for CBD oil is saturated and probably prices will come down. But by that point, these other markets for hemp, fiber, and building products will emerge presumably and create new markets for hemp. We all know that back in the day, a lot of rope and heavy cloth used to be made from hemp. Um, But these days, you can also use the, the hemp fibers, basically the waste material from harvesting other products using hemp can be turned into building materials like construction blocks or panels that can be made to build houses and and commercial buildings. This would also be a great opportunity for some ancillary businesses if uh, hemp gets legalized, because you point out in your article, there's no equipment in the United States capable of processing the fiber from hemp. I imagine at one point in time, America had this kind of equipment because we used to make a lot of things out of hemp. But you know, nearly 100 years have gone by and that equipment doesn't exist in this country anymore. So the 
there's a program in Pennsylvania right now that's um, being led in part by the National Hemp Association to create enough of a, a local crop in hemp to make it sensible to develop this equipment so that the fibers can be processed there. And that's kind of what needs to happen all over the country again. So once we see more acres being planted in hemp, there will be market incentives to start developing the equipment to process the fiber domestically. Another business I could see developing from this uh, would be for maybe people who will run greenhouse operations, and that's culling out the male plant from the female plant because you mentioned in the article there is a chance the feds might put restrictions that you can only grow the female plant right and the reason for that is that um it, the hemp and marijuana can cross-pollinate and your hemp could essentially become marijuana and you don't want that because you don't want to be restricted by the laws that govern marijuana growing if all you want to do is grow hemp so in some cases right now, you cannot plant hemp unless you're five miles away from the nearest marijuana grower. Or you, in addition, you may have to be able to prove that you're only growing male hemp plants, which cannot cross-pollinate. So right now what some people are doing is, is growing the plants in the greenhouse, and you cannot figure out which plant you have until they reach a certain age. So you grow them in the greenhouse, and then you call out the ones that you cannot plant. So, yes, there could be a market for somebody who, who does this in the greenhouse and then sells the, the plant to farmers later on. Now, let's talk a little bit, though, about as far as consumption goes, uh, the possibilities of this being a human food. Right now in, in America, you can go into pretty much any grocery store and find hemp seed or hemp oil. Uh, if not any grocery store, then a natural foods type store, you can find this stuff on the shelf. Hemp oil and and the seed are both extremely nutritious. They offer uh, nutritional benefits that um, are popular with people who are vegetarians or vegans because you they, they provide some nutrients that you can't get um, otherwise. Hemp oil has some cooking properties that are attractive to cooks that, that can't be found in other oils. Um, hemp oil is also used cosmetically as a as a lotion and a hair treatment and all kinds of things like that. Hemp, hemp seed is also very high in protein as well. And I would think, too, growing hemp would be especially interesting to farmers in California, especially those in the southern part of the state where arid conditions may take hold a lot sooner. Water will become more expensive if available at all. And yet here's a, a commodity that can be grown on half the water of most field crops. Right. I think we'll probably see hemp being grown in California on a large scale eventually. Um, last year, there there wasn't any hemp recorded as being grown in California, but a lot of this, uh, a lot of the growth in the crop tracks where marijuana has already been legalized. So California just legalized it for recreational purposes. So I imagine very soon we'll see people starting to grow hemp in its wake. Another interesting property of hemp is that it basically requires no pesticides to grow. So you're not going to have the water quality uh, runoff problems that you have on a lot of other farms growing other types of crops. Now, again, even though it may pass in the farm bill on the federal level, it would still need to be okayed as far as for hemp growing on massive acres by California, wouldn't it? I think that kind of remains unclear right now. My understanding is once it's legalized at the federal level, it becomes legal everywhere as 
as any other kind of crop. You know, you don't you generally don't need your state's approval to plant corn or alfalfa. So I think once it's legalized by the feds, uh, it'll be okay to grow it anywhere. Would this also be a, a big tax day for the states, too? Can they tax this product? Well, they probably could implement a special tax on hemp growing. I imagine that would be resisted by the farm industry, though, uh, because, you know, we don't see that with with any other regular crop. It's not like marijuana where you have a need to regulate it for the, the, the drug side effects that it creates. So I, the answer is, sure, it could be taxed, but it seems like that would be a risky move for most states. Well, it just might be a product that will supplant almonds and wine grapes and dairy as one of the biggest California commodities. It's hemp, and we'll see what happens. Check out the article at waterdeeply.com written by Matt Weiser, Hemp Legalization Poised to Transform Agriculture in Arid West. It's a fine article. And Matt, thanks for talking with us, and best of luck. Thanks for having me. Finally, after a horrible winter that sounded a lot like this... We at last are hearing sounds like... And some of us, if we haven't already, will be happy to hear... Ah, yes, the sounds of food sizzling on the grill. So, coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA, outdoor cooking mess-ups, miscues, goofs, and gaffes, how not to safely cook and serve food as we get set to start the outdoor grilling season. I'm Gary Crawford. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, summertime, summertime. Oh, uh-huh, yes, summertime, 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 summertime is summertime, almost summertime, here, and that summertime. means outdoor grilling season's almost here, too. Yes, we love to grill at our house. In fact, my husband got a new grill, so he's very excited about using it. That's Mary Ann Gravely. People want to say Gravely, but it's a southern name, so it's Gravely. But she doesn't sound Gravely. Anyway, she's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which we'll give you in a minute. This time of year, she and her colleagues get lots of questions about grilling, and I had some also, such as what's the biggest food safety mistake most of us make when we grill? The biggest mistake might be cross-contamination, which would be if you are carrying a plate of raw chicken or raw hamburgers to the grill, then you cook the whatever it is you're cooking, and then if you were to put that back on the same plate that held the raw food, you could contaminate the cooked food with bacteria from the raw food. So always have separate plates, one for the cooked foods and one for the raw food so that you don't contaminate cooked food with bacteria. The second biggest mistake is not actually with the grilling process. It's after the foods are ready to eat. And there, the mess up is... Leaving food out too long. Normally, we would say never leave food out for more than two hours. But in the summertime, when it's hot, foods should not sit out for more than one hour. So set a timer so that you know if one or two hours has passed and put the cooked foods back in the cooler. And gravely says... gravely. Oh, yeah. Gravely says, keep foods like salads, coleslaw, potato salad on ice or in a cooler. The idea, of course, keep the cold foods cold, hot foods hot, because it's, say, between 40 degrees and 140 that bacteria can grow. Now, room temperature, they just love that, according to Gravely. It's Gravely. Okay, my mistake. But there are plenty of grilling mistakes to go around. Some of them coming very close to Mary Ann's home. I like to tell the story of how my husband cooked a turkey in one hour by setting it on fire in the grill. 
And no, the fire department really didn't have to come. That was just a dramatic license on my part. Now, how in the world did that turkey go up in flames? We'll give you that story in a minute, too. Marianne says, actually, one of the biggest goofs that many of us make when grilling is not overcooking to the point of combustion, but rather undercooking to the point of not killing any bacteria that may be in or on the meat we're grilling. And just eyeballing it won't do the trick. The only way to know if you've cooked something thoroughly is to use a meat thermometer. You can't tell by looking. She says a meat thermometer is just as important as all the other barbecue tools that we use, just as important as having the phone number of the uh, fire department handy. Of course, if you don't know what temperature your foods need to be cooked to, then the thermometer's not much use to us. So listen carefully, because in the last couple of years, these recommended temperatures have changed. If you're cooking a whole cut of meat, like a steak or a roast or chops, whether it be beef, pork, lamb, goat, <laughs> we recommend cooking it to an internal temperature of 145 degrees. Then we allow a three-minute standing time. Next, for poultry, whole birds or parts, get those items up to 165 degrees. Now, whole birds cooked to 165, they still might look kind of pink in places, so... You may prefer to cook it to a little higher temperature, just for personal preference. <laughs> but not as high as uh, uh, Mary Ann's husband did on that turkey. So, of course, many of us simply put burgers on the grill. Mary Ann says we really need to get the center of that patty to at least 160 degrees. And again, no matter what we always thought color's not a reliable indicator of doneness. That patty could be brown with no pink and still not be cooked hot enough to kill the bacteria. And oh, we promised to explain how uh, Marianne's husband grilled a turkey to the point of making it into turkey flambe. Very simple, really. The turkey has a lot of juices and it dripped down and my husband's not one to spend a lot of time watching food grill, so he put the turkey on the grill, he covered it and he walked away and when he came back and opened it up, I guess the air the turkey was on fire. It was had a very nice black coating. <laughs> okay, so if you have questions about grilling or any food safety type question, call the Meat and Poultry Hotline, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.